0: And we will read together verses 19 through 24. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You you, you, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's bow our heads together as we open our time in prayer. Our Father, we do love You. Our Lord Jesus, we love You. And Spirit of God, we love You. We thank You that You are infinite and lofty and transcendent and far above our comprehension. If we could get our minds around all of Your being and all of Your nature without any questions or any mystery, we would indeed have a small God. So we thank You that You are beyond our comprehension and that You are really inexplicable. But we also thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us, not only in Scripture, but in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, who came here and lived among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We pray that as a result of our time in your word, that you would open our eyes to behold the Lord Jesus Christ and your nature and your being, that you may remove some of the mystery surrounding who you are and help us to get a fresh glimpse of our God. Bless this time. Bless, I pray, my ability to communicate these things and our ability together to comprehend these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I survey the landscape of evangelical Christianity in this country, and I would have to say that I am limited in assessing evangelical Christianity to this country, and maybe uh, Canada as well, because that would be really all that I'm intimately familiar with, U.S. and Canada. I really have no idea what goes on abroad, overseas. But as I sort of survey the landscape of evangelical Christianity in this country... I have to ask the question, or at least I have to think, come to the conclusion that I'm not sure that worship is for Christians the priority that it should be. And by that, I do not mean that in churches and among Christians that we are not doing things that we, we call worship all across this country for the last number of hours and then here even today and now in even our own time zone. There are things going on that we associate with worship, singing and preaching and praying and teaching and fellowshipping and, uh, giving and all of the things, communion and baptism that are all part of what we call worship. So my, my goal here this morning is not to say that those things are not true worship. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to sort of put some parameters in place that will help us to determine what, if what we're doing is worship or not. But I guess what I mean is, when I look out at Christianity, is the subject or is the question What is worship? Is that really important to the people of God? Are we really serious in asking that question? What constitutes true worship? How do we know, how do I know, that if what I just offered to the Lord was acceptable to Him and pleasing to Him, or if He is indifferent to what just took place, or if He was offended by what just took place? How do we know that? Now, I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that I'm in this camp over here. That when I get to heaven, I want the Lord to be able to say that he was pleased with what I just offered to him. But do Christians, do churches really ask the question, what is true, genuine worship? I think that for most believers, we have kind of an attitude that would be expressed like this. Look, I come to church once a week, give or take, if nothing steps in the way. But I come to church basically once a week. I put my money in the offering box on the way in. I I meet with God's people. I sang through the songs. I listened to the special. And then I listened to you drone on and on for what seems like a short eternity. And then when we're all done, we close in prayer, we shake hands, and we leave here. I attended the worship service. Isn't that what God expects of me? So if I attended the worship service, and I sang, and I listened, and I left, what else is there? Of course I worshiped. What else is there to do? Is there other elements to worship? I would say that there is. Now, unbelievers are not concerned with what constitutes true worship at all. Do unbelievers want to worship the one true God? No, they don't. They love darkness. They hate the light. They love their sin. They don't come to the light. They don't want to worship the light. They don't want to understand the light. They don't want to bask and bathe in the light or have fellowship in the light because they love their deeds of darkness. So an unbeliever not only does not want to truly worship the one true God, when an unbeliever comes to a church, what an unbeliever wants is to worship a God in his own image. What an unbeliever wants is for somebody to sort of mask the truth and hide the light so that he can feel comfortable among God's people. And what he wants to worship is an idol of his own making, or the idol of his own heart, or some image of God that he has in his mind, but doesn't want to be confronted with the truth. And churches do a great disservice when they hide the one true God and offer to unbelievers exactly what they come to church to get, and that is shielded from the light. Unbelievers not only do not want to worship the one true God, they can't worship the one true God, and they can never offer to God acceptable worship because true worship happens in spirit and in truth. And an unbeliever whose spirit has never been regenerated and has never been given a new heart and a new spirit and a new life cannot worship in that capacity because he is dead spiritually. And so all he has is a carnal heart, an unbelieving heart, a dead heart, and depraved heart, and so everything that he offers to God is unacceptable to God. He's over in this camp. He cannot offer to God that which is acceptable, because that which is acceptable must come from a regenerated, a renewed spirit, and it must be offered in spirit and in truth. And unbelievers don't know the truth, they haven't embraced the truth, and they don't love the truth, so they can't offer worship in spirit and in truth. But we, as believers, can worship in spirit and truth, and we ought to worship in spirit and truth, and we have to be concerned with what it means to worship in spirit and truth, and that's where we're at here in John chapter 4. We saw last week that all of our worship begins with God. When you ask yourself the question, what constitutes true worship? We do not ask the question this way and say, what do I want to offer to God? What do I feel like giving to God? What is comfortable for me to give to God? What do, how do I want to worship? Or how does our culture want to worship? Or worse yet, how do unbelievers outside the church want us to worship so that they will feel welcome here when we do worship? Those are all the wrong questions. The question begins with, who is God and how does He want to be worshipped? Because worship is not about us, is it? When we walk away from here, we should never say to ourselves, well, I didn't get much out of that, I didn't receive much, I wasn't really blessed by that. When we leave here, we ought to be leaving here saying to ourselves, we hope that God is pleased with what we have just offered to him. Because it's not for us, it's for God. So the question is, what pleases him? Not what do I want, not what do I want to give, but what pleases God? And so all worship, all true worship, comes back to and begins with God. And our worship, our practice of worship, is birthed out of, it grows out of the fertile soil of sound doctrine, which is why Jesus... When he was speaking to the woman at the well, before he described to her what true worship is, he said to her, God is spirit. He gave this magnificent statement on the nature and the character and the essence of God so that she could understand who God is. She had to have a right understanding of who God is because it is sound doctrine which gives birth to sound worship. It's good doctrine which creates good worship. Good worship flows from an understanding and a knowledge of God, which is why the thing that faulted Samaritan worship What Jesus faulted with Samaritan worship was their ignorance. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation of the Jews. And the most fundamental problem with Samaritan worship was that they worship in ignorance, and that is not a commendation or a compliment. It's a critique, and it's a criticism. And because they didn't know the God that they worshiped, then everything that they did about that was offered in ignorance, and it was thus, over here in this camp, unacceptable to God. So we're in John chapter 4, and we are looking at Just this one phrase, God is spirit. What does that mean? And we want to understand that. And that's one of those phrases that, quite frankly, we read over it. At least I do. I tend to do this. I read over it and I "Wait, God is spirit. Okay, I got that. He's not material. And then we read on with the rest of the passage and the phrase. But we don't really give much thought to exactly what that means and what the implications of that are for our worship. But we want to understand it. What does it mean that God is Spirit. We begin with a sort of a translation issue. And if you have in your lap the King James Version, the KJV, you'll notice that it says God is a spirit, as in the article there. God is a spirit. And the NASB and the NIV and the ESV and the LAPD and the CIA and the FBI, they all translate it something different. God is spirit. Not a spirit, but God is spirit. Now, you can translate it God is a spirit, or you can translate it God is spirit, so long as you understand what is being said and what is not being said. What is not being said is this. God is a spirit, one of many. Sort of equal spirits. He's just one of the spirits. That's not the essence there. Really, the best translation is God is spirit, because that gets to his very nature. He's not just a spirit, he is spirit. Now, quite frankly, this is almost an incomprehensible, inexplicable, undescribable, ununderstandable, if there's such a word, idea. That God is spirit. It seems so simple to us, doesn't it? And yet when we begin to flesh this out, you're going to see it's it's far more complex and far more more deep than we initially think, that God is spirit. He's not just a spirit, but he is, by his very essence and in his very nature, spirit. J.C. Ryle said of that statement, God is spirit, that description before us is one of the most lofty and definite statements, sayings about God's nature, which is to be found in the whole Bible. And then he said this, to define precisely the full meaning of the expression is past man's understanding, end quote. And I'll be honest with you, that's where I feel this morning. I feel like I have, it seems like such a simple statement, but all week long, to be honest with you, I have been wrestling with words, trying to find a way to express the inexpressible. That God is spirit. What exactly does that mean? It's, it's really unlike anything that you and I have ever considered or ever tried to grasp. Jesus could have said it a number of different ways. There are other things that he could have said which equally would have been true. This, in John 4.24, is the only place in all of the scripture where the spirituality of God, that is, God's nature, is expressed in such simple, such concise language. There are other places in the Psalms and the Old Testament and the prophets that describe God's omnipresence, his ability to be everywhere, the fact that he is not confined to a body, he's not like an idol, he can't be represented physically. But in all of the Bible, this is the most concise statement that just says God is spirit. So it's as if Jesus is summing up the whole nature of God, his whole essence, in that one statement, that God is spirit. There are other ways that Jesus could have phrased this that would have been equally as true. For instance, Jesus could have said, look, God is love. Now, is that a true statement? That's a true statement. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God is love, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth and must love God. That would have been a true statement. Or Jesus could have said, God is light, and therefore those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That would have been a true statement. Or Jesus could have said, God is truth, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But Jesus says God is spirit. Why spirit and not any other statement that would have been equally true and equally as profound? For this reason, the question that the woman asked was, where do I worship? Right? You say Jerusalem, we say Gerizim. Two mountains, two nations, two opinions, two takes on the Scripture, two temples, two systems of worship. Where do I go? Do I go to Jerusalem or do I go to Gerizim? Now Jesus is answering your question. He says the time is coming when the location is going to be irrelevant. How can the location be irrelevant? Because God is spirit. And because God is spirit, the location is therefore irrelevant. But you say in your mind, you're thinking it now, Wasn't everything bound up around the location under the Old Covenant? And it was. Since God is spirit, God can, He is free to, make location an issue. You understand this? He is free to make location an issue. If God had said, I want to be worshipped on top of Mount Shasta, and only on top of Mount Shasta, then we would be obligated to obey that. And under the Old Covenant, that's exactly what God did. He said, Jerusalem is the place in the temple, with the sacrifices, and this priesthood, and these people, according to these parameters, this is how I am to be worshipped, this way and this way only, and it must take place here. He made, God is free to make, location an issue. But under the new covenant, after the cross and the ascension and resurrection of Jesus, location is no longer an issue. And that's why Jesus said a time was coming and now is, when it's not going to be in Jerusalem, it's not going to be Gerizim, it's going to be everywhere. How can location not be an issue? Because God is spirit. And that goes back to his very nature. This, by the way, is what theologians call the doctrine of God's spirituality. Spirituality. Now, if I had said to you when I first got up here, I'm going to speak to you today about the spirituality of God, you'd have said, huh? What does that mean? Which is exactly what I say when somebody says to me, you know, he's not a religious person, but he's very spiritual. What does that mean, he's very spiritual? You know what that means? It means he doesn't believe anything in concrete or anything in particular. He just believes whatever he wants to believe, but he's somehow in touch with his emotional side, or his feminine side, or whatever it is that makes him a spiritual individual. He's just a very spiritual person. Well, by spirituality of God, we don't mean that God is in touch with his feminine side or in touch with sort of a material emotional element within his being. We simply mean to describe that his very essence, that he is spirit and that he is not body. It is easier to describe what this does not mean than it is to describe what it means. So when we read words like God is spirit, it's easier to say that means not this and not this and not this. And that is partly because you and I are familiar with only things physical for the most part. Only things physical. Since you woke up this morning to this moment right now, you have passed, handled, touched, interact with, seen a thousand or more physical things. Have you not? Thousands upon thousands of physical things. Everything you are familiar with in your life is physical—the food you eat, the clothes you wear, the people you associate with. By and large, we are not—we are not used to thinking in non-physical or spiritual terms. And yet, at the same time, you and I are very intimately connected with things which are spiritual and not physical. And what do I mean by that? Are you a physical or are you a spiritual being? You are both, are you not? Now you're looking at me right now, pretty much everybody is, but are you really looking at me? You're not looking at the me, which is really me, are you? If you're not looking at me at all, you're just looking at a body that happens to possess and be animated by the real me. But the real me is not a physical entity, it's not a physical being. It's a spirit-soul being. I believe the spirit and soul are the same thing. We have a material and an immaterial part. But the real me is not standing here in front of you in a visible form. Let me do a little thought experiment with you. I want everybody in the room to think of a pink elephant. Got a picture of a pink elephant in your mind? Everybody sees the pink elephant? Pink elephant. Elephant that is pink. Now, if I were to come down there and cut open your head and look inside your brain, would I be able to see a pink elephant? No. Why not? Because your thoughts are not physical things, are they? Your emotions, your wills, your motives, your thoughts, your imaginations. None of the things that you are aware of constantly are physical things. I am a spiritual being in a physical body, so I understand what it means to be spirit in the sense that there is a part of me which cannot be seen. There is a part of me which is invisible. There is a part of me that you can't see. You can't see right now what I'm thinking. And you know what I'm thinking? No, of course you don't. I'm thinking, I wonder what's on the other side of that wall. Now, though I'm a spirit being, I'm not omnipresent, am I? So I am here, but I am physically located here. And I'm not here and over on the other side of the wall at the same time. I can only be present in one place at one time. Why? Because I'm a spiritual being, but I'm a spiritual being that has a locality. And God is not like that. So in one sense, God being spirit, we can relate to that because we understand what it is to have a being that is unseen and cannot be seen, is invisible. But at the other, on the other hand, we can't relate to it because we have no idea what it's like to be a spiritual being that is omnipresent and infinite in time and space and infinite beyond time and space. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says God is spirit. Not that he is physically located in any one body, but that he is omnipresent everywhere, that he cannot be seen. He is invisible and he is in his essence, in his nature, spirit. Now I said it's easier to describe what this does not mean than it is to describe what it means. So let me give you a couple things that it does not mean or things that sort of the statement precludes. When we say that God is spirit, we mean that God cannot be divided. He is indivisible. He is indivisible. That is to say that God is not composed of a compound of elements or parts. He is spirit, and that is his essence, and it is a simple essence. And by simple, we don't mean simplistic, or stupid, or dumbed down, or easily apprehended or grasped with the mind. By simple, we mean that he is one essence, spirit. He is not a combination of this and plus this and plus this and plus this gives us God, and you put all of them together and you have God. He cannot be compounded, nor can he be divided. Now, you and I are not simple beings. We are are complex beings in the technical terms. We are complex in that we are composed of immaterial and material. Can we be divided? Yeah, every person in this room is going to be divided someday. Your spirit is going to leave your body, and you are going to be divided as a person. And you are no longer going to have a body. But God is not that way. Because he is spirit, he cannot be divided. He cannot be compounded. Nothing can be added to him, and nothing can be subtracted from him, because he is a simple being. He is just spirit. He is not compounded with more than one element, or made up of more than one element. Second, when we say that God is spirit, it also means that nothing material can be predicated of God. Nothing material or physical can be predicated of God. And by that, we mean that we cannot describe him accurately or fully in terms that are used to describe things which are physical or material. In other words, God has no bulk and no mass. You can't weigh him. He's not big in the sense of, we think, distance. Okay, the size of God is this. He can't be measured. He has no length. He has no depth. He has no width. He has no bulk, no mass, no atomic weight. No physical description is capable of capturing who he is, or what he is, or describing his essence. He can't be added to. He can't grow. He can't stretch. He can't expand. He can't be subtracted from. He can't be minimized. He can't shrink. See, these are all terms that we use to describe everything in our lives. And so in one sense, we can understand God is spirit. I can kind of grasp that. But since he is spirit, no physical attribute can be predicated or used to describe him. Because none of those things accurately captures who he is because he is spirit. Now, once you begin to get your mind around this, you can begin to understand the reason for the prohibition in the Ten Commandments about a graven image. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You starting to understand the reason for that? You know what an idol says? An idol says that God has a physical form. You create an idol and you put it up on the mantle. And the idol communicates to everybody who sees it, everybody who walks by it, everybody who knows about it, to the entire watching world, an idol communicates this idea that God has a physical form. He has a physical form. So he looks like this. He has this shape or this size or this description. But that that can never begin to capture God, is it? Because does God have a physical form? Not at all. It doesn't have a physical form. So an idol really is a blaspheme or a libel, a slander against the fact that God is does not have a physical form because it communicates to people that he is physical when, in fact, he is not. doesn't even begin to communicate the essence of his nature. Or an idol also communicates to people that God can be contained in space, like water is contained in a cup. So you create the idol and you say, this is God. And he's inside here. But can God be contained in space? He cannot. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him. This universe, billions and billions of light years, billions and trillions of light years across, cannot contain him. Why? Because he's big? Would well, be wrong for me to say that he's big, wouldn't it? Because that is a, that is an attribute that we ascribe to as something physical. But he cannot be contained because he is spirit. But an idol says to everybody watching, your God can be contained like water in a jar. He's in, in this piece of wood, or he's in this piece of gold, or he's in this physical thing. So it is actually a liable, a slander against God's omnipresence. An idol also communicates to people that God is limited to a space. I can put the idol here or I could put the idol here, or I could put the idol here and make a duplicate of the idol and put the idol here and here and here, but the idol can't be everywhere, can he? So the idol actually communicates to people that your God is limited in space. He's not omnipresent. He can be here, but he can't be on the other side of that wall, so he's much like you. That's why that's why the psalmist, the God says through the psalmist, you thought that I was altogether like you, but you were so wrong. An idol communicates that God is just like us. He can be confined and contained in a space. Further, an idol communicates to people that God can be moved and he can be manipulated. And you can put perfume on the outside of him and make him smell real pretty and you can dress him up according to the seasons and put him up there. Or you can put a, a, a cloth over his eyes so your idol can't see you. And you can move him from here to there or turn him so he faces the wall. You don't want him seeing what you're doing. You just turn him so he's facing the wall. See, an idol communicates to, to people that God cannot see what's going on. God can be manipulated or moved or controlled. And idol also says that God is helpless and hopeless, that he's powerless, that his arm cannot save. He can't hear, he can't speak, he can't communicate, he can't see, he can't move himself. An idol also communicates that God is changing and can change. Because after a while, that wooden idol begins to fade, doesn't it? You put it in the sun and it, the wood begins to fade. It's not quite the color it was when you, you first cut it out of that block of wood. Or you can cover it up with metal, but the metal will tarnish. And if you tip it over and it falls and it gets a little nick in the outside of the metal, well, that's a change. See, everything about the idol communicates deterioration and change. But God does not change. There's no shifting shadow or change with him whatsoever. He changes not. From age to age, he is the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. Can you see why an idol is such an abomination and such a horrific blaspheme against God? Everything about an idol communicates the opposite of what is true of God. Everything about it. Because God is not like anything you have ever experienced. Nothing. So it is impossible to even begin to comprehend the fullness of who he is in terms of what you and I encounter every day, because he is spirit. Now, is God a big spirit or a small spirit? Come on now, somebody say it. You can't say he's big or small, can you? Because those are terms that we use to describe what? Physical objects. And nothing physical can be predicated of him. So an idol is a blaspheme against God. Another reason is because an idol is visible and God is invisible. Galatians 1.15 says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Hebrews 11.27 says, by faith he left Egypt, this Moses, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Since God is spirit, he is invisible in his essence. He cannot be seen. He cannot be apprehended with the eyes at all. So now you say, but Jim, it sounds to me like you have described everything that an idol or everything that God is not. He's not like this, and he's not like that, and he's not like this. And that's all I really have done up to this point. And I've said none of these things, and none, the, none of these, yeah, none of these things can really be used to describe or to help us get our minds around God. There has to be something else that helps us to apprehend who He is and what He is. And so since God is not like anything else, we come to understand at least a glimpse of what it means that God is spirit, that he is not these things. He's not physical. He's not visible. He cannot be represented by anything that is physical. And it is actually an abomination to God for us to think of him in terms that are physical. We have to simply grasp him with the heart and say, God is spirit. God is spirit. So now, having some understanding at least, do you really? No, I don't. But at least I think I've tried to clear away the clouds a little bit from this, getting some grasp of the nature of God and clarifying it a little bit. Then we say, well, there are still three three theological issues that we kind of have to deal with, three questions, and they may be floating around in your mind. So let's, let's deal with all three of these. What about the appearances of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? What do we do with those? If, as John 1.18 says, no man has seen God at any time, and yet it says that God appeared to Moses and appeared to Abraham and God appeared to others, Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel saw visions of God, what was it that they were seeing if it was not God? How can he who is invisible be visible to certain people at certain times in the Bible? What do we do with the appearances of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament? If God is invisible, how did, what did these people see or did they actually see anything? And the answer is yes, what they did see was real, and what they saw was a vision of God, but what they saw was not the effulgence, the fullness of God's being and his character. What they saw was a vision, a representation, a physical manifestation, a revelation of who God was, but it was not the full splendor of his being. They did not ever see, nor has anybody ever seen, the core essence and nature and The fulgence of God's being, the, the centrality of his being. Moses only saw the glory of his hind parts as it passed by. Not even the person of God, but just the glory which radiated from him. So what did they see, Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Abraham, Moses, and others? What did they see if it was not God? What they saw was not God in his being, but God as he manifested himself physically to him. Moses did not see a full manifestation of the being of God, not because God is unable to manifest himself fully, but because Moses was unable to handle seeing God manifested fully. So that vision that Moses saw of God was suited to his weakness. And God is does not reveal himself, the fullness of his being to us, not because he is trying to hide himself to us, but all the revelations of God are designed to reveal God to us. But those revelations have to be suited to us and our abilities to see them and comprehend them. Moses could never have beheld the glory of God, the essence of God, the fullness of his being. He could never have looked upon him because he would have dissolved in an instant. He could never have handled that. So what he saw was a physical representation or physical manifestation of God catered to the weakness of the being so that Moses would be able to apprehend it, to see it, to get a glimpse of it, but what he saw was not really the fullness of God. Let me give you an illustration, and I'm not sure that this analogy is going to work entirely. It might limp a little bit, but be patient, bear with me a little bit. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Now, do away with all the self-congratulatory thoughts that are running through your mind right now. When you look into the mirror, what do you see? Do you see yourself? Yes and no. Do you really see yourself? Is that you in the mirror? It's not you, is it? It's a physical representation of you. But you are standing there looking into the mirror. And it is the same thing with God. When they saw God, they saw a physical representation of Him, but they did not actually see His being. Second theological question that we have to answer is what, what does this what are we to make of passages in the Bible which seem to describe God in physical terms? Let me give you a couple of them. Isaiah fifty two, verse ten The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Psalm thirty four fifteen, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Number 625, the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. What are we to do with passages like that that describe God in human terms? Do Are we then to understand that God has a physical arm, physical eyes, physical ears, a mouth, and a face? Is that how we're to look at God? Was Jesus ignorant of all these Old Testament passages that describe God in these physical terms? And did Jesus not understand the real nature of God when he said God is spirit? No perish the thought. But we are to understand these passages in a different way. This is what we call anthropomorphisms. Big word, anthropomorphisms. Anthro from anthropos, which means man, like we get our word anthropology from it. Anthro. And morphe, which means likeness or image or uh, a, a form of something. So an anthropomorphism is a form or image of man, man image. So when the New Testament or Old Testament writers wanted to describe some element of God's character or nature, They would do it in terms that you and I can relate to. So the arm of the Lord, we associate arm with strength, power, ability, might. And so that's what it's intended to communicate. Not that we understand literally that God has an arm, but that we understand the literal truth that God is mighty and powerful and strong and able to do things. The eyes and the ears of the Lord are statements which refer to God's omniscience. So when we say the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, we don't mean literally that God's eyes jump out and they run to and fro throughout the earth. But we understand that that is an anthropomorphism a man-like image that's used to describe a very little truth, and that is that God sees everything. He sees everything. The face of the Lord communicates the idea of graciousness. So these are anthropomorphisms, and we don't take them in a literal fashion as if God has a body, as if God has a body, much like the error that Kenneth Copeland makes. Kenneth Copeland is a word faith teacher. He said one time in a sermon this, quote, God is not some creature that stands 28 feet tall, and he's got hands, you know, as big as basketballs. That's not the kind of creature he is. So far, so good. Back to Kenneth Copeland. A being that is very uncanny, the way he's very much like you and me. A being that stands somewhere around 6'2", 6'3", that weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple hundred pounds, little better, and has a hand span of about nine inches across. End quote. That's word faith theology about the nature of who God is. He's a being, stands 6'2", 6'3", weighs a couple hundred pounds, has a hand span of about nine inches much like you and I. Now, if Kenneth Copeland had never made another statement that would qualify him as a heretic, that one statement right there would qualify him for the hottest fires of hell. Likewise, the Mormon doctrine that God is a physical man who was once like you and I. That's Mormon doctrine. Lorenzo Snow, the Mormon president from years ago, coined a couplet that said, God is now, or sorry, man is, uh, yeah, here's the couplet. Never trust the guy who can't remember the couplet. As man is, God no, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. God was once like you and I with a body. He has now a physical body in heaven near a planet where he has celestial relations with all of his physical wives for all of eternity. And he will. That's Mormon doctrine about God that he has a body. But he does not have a body. He doesn't have literal arms and ears. Of course, Mormons would point to all the passages that I just read you about the eyes of the Lord, the ears of the Lord, the arms of the Lord, the face of the Lord, the mouth of the Lord. But what would they do with Psalm 91, verse 4, that says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Are we then to understand that God has wings and literal feathers? That would be a poultry pomorphism, (laughs) wouldn't it? You learn things here that you will never learn anywhere else. That would be a a poultry pomorphism. It is an image or a figure of speech that is used to communicate a very literal truth. And what is it? That God is a shield. He is a protector. He covers and hovers and protects his people like a mother hen or like a mother bird protects her chicks. Third theological question. What about the incarnation? If God does not have a body and we say that Jesus Christ is God, then what does that do with our doctrine of the Incarnation? Is it not true that today in heaven, or at least on earth, that God has a body? How does the incarnation work in with this spirituality or the spiritual nature of God? The question can only come up if we misunderstand what the incarnation was and what we mean when we say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So while we say that it is true that Jesus Christ is God, that he is fully God, and that all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form, that is, he is the radiance of God's image. He is the exact representation of the nature and the glory of God. He is in human flesh, everything that can be seen of God physically, because God, in all of his fullness, is manifested in Christ. So he is at the same time fully God and fully man. But does that mean that the second person of the Trinity, the Word, the eternal Word, is confined in that physical body like an animal is confined in a cage? And the answer is no. No. So, though while Jesus Christ is the full radiance of all the nature of God, the second person of the Trinity, though dwelling in him in fullness, was not confined in him like an animal in a cage or like water in a cup, but he is at the same time present, physically present in Christ and also omnipresent and present in the farthest corners of the universe at the same time. Christ lives in me and Christ lives in you and Christ lives in the person sitting next to you. But he also is where? In heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is omnipresent everywhere because he is spirit. God the Father is spirit. God the Son is spirit. God the Holy Spirit is spirit. All three of those persons together, which are the one God, are eternal spirit and eternally omnipresent. So though Christ was here physically, that did not mean that he was only here physically. He was here physically, fully in his glory and radiance, fully united with humanity, but also at the same time omnipresent and present everywhere because he was and is the eternal God who is, in his essence, Spirit. Now, if you think it's hard to understand these things, try explaining them. And try making them understandable. I I don't even feel like I can begin to remove the fog from this. All I can sort of do is try and crystallize it a little bit. As Frederick, Frederick Faber once said, God is darkness to the intellect, but sunshine to the heart. God is darkness to the intellect, but sunshine to the heart. What we cannot grasp or apprehend with our minds, ironically, we can grasp and apprehend and know with our hearts. Isn't that weird? We can know him intimately with our hearts without ever grasping him or understanding him with our minds. So God is darkness to my mind, but he is to my soul, light and warmth, and I can grab him and apprehend him. And understand him with my heart in ways that I cannot with my mind. Because my mind cannot stretch itself around God. Because these things are beyond us. They're incomprehensible, inexplicable, unexplainable, indescribable, ineffable. You can't put words to these things. Nothing Nothing in our life, nothing in our experiences can compare. You can never say God is like this. Every analogy breaks down. All we can say is he is spirit. As far as we can go. That God is spirit. Now, the fact that God is spirit means that there are implications for our worship. Implications for our worship. Because God is spirit, we worship him in spirit and in truth. And we will look next week at what that means, to worship God in spirit, what the implications of that are. Let's pray together. Father, you are a darkness to our intellect. Our minds, our thoughts are never worthy of you. As high and lofty as they might be, we simply are unable to communicate and even understand the essence and the fullness of who you are. But we thank you that you have not held us accountable to know what is unknowable. You have not held us accountable and will not judge us for un- not understanding what you have not revealed or what is in ununderstandable, under- un- incomprehensible, but that you hold us accountable for accepting and embracing what you have revealed. And we can know you in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we thank you that you and your indescribable essence was manifested here in the flesh for us to behold and to see and to know. And we thank you that you have revealed enough for us to know you savingly and to apprehend you with our hearts and to walk in fellowship with you. We pray that you would help to crystallize these things in our hearts and in our minds. And though you may seem so out of reach to us, we pray that you would, as we draw near to you, draw near to us and make yourself known. We praise you as your people, and thank you for your goodness to us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.